Amen. Thank you, Jacob and Kaylee. What a blessing. As the choir comes down, you can get your Bible out, open to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah 6, uh, if you open your Bible to the middle, to Psalms, and then back up, you'll find Nehemiah. If you get to Ezra, you went too far. We're studying through the book of Nehemiah, and God has been teaching us some things about Himself and about His economy through this study. Uh, This book is uh, so practical in so many ways. Uh, I was thinking this week that, you know, you don't, all of us who are uh, students of the Bible understand that we don't all know the Bible equally well. There are just certain sections of the Bible that we tend to know better than others for whatever reason. Maybe we've studied it more often. Maybe uh, you go to this church, and so you would say that you know Galatians better than you do the other letters of Paul because we study through it verse by verse, whatever the case may be. I would say that Nehemiah is uh, certainly one of the Old Testament books that I know better than any other book, Um, and yet it's just surprising to me, again, uh, how many new and amazing things that I have been seeing in the book of Nehemiah as we've looked through it, especially in chapters 5 and 6. And I feel like this morning, again, the Lord wants to speak to us uh, specifically about some of the ways that we oftentimes think about Him that are incorrect. And uh, really, these are areas of our life, as we saw last week, that are so pervasive. These aren't small areas. We devoted our entire time last week to uh, the way God's teaching us through Nehemiah that Uh, Your circumstances are not an indicator as to whether or not you're in the will of God. You need more information than simply that. Just because things are going good or things are going bad, you'd be greatly deceived to think that that's an indication of whether or not you're in the will of God. Ease is certainly not an indication of that. And so this morning, as we look at the light at the end of the tunnel, I believe that the Lord again will uh, open our eyes if we allow him to see uh, just some differences in the way that he does things in his economy and his way. So let's pray, and then we'll study Nehemiah 6. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. God, it is a gracious, perfect, inerrant gift that we receive this morning, knowing fully that you have intended this for us. Lord, I uh, just am grateful for the way that you have spoken to my heart through this study. And Lord, I pray that this morning you just anoint my lips and Father God, that you'll just use me as an instrument as you instruct us as your people and encourage us and mold us and shape us into your likeness this morning, Father. Please have your way with us, Lord. Give us ears to hear and hearts that might receive and respond to that which we'll hear from you today. And we thank you in advance for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in many things, not all things, but in in a lot of things in life, the further along you get in a project or the closer you get to the finish line, uh, the more difficult it becomes. Now, that's not true in every secular arena in our life. Sometimes the hardest part is getting started. Sometimes the hardest uh, challenges come at the beginning of the process. But with regard to God, in the economy of God, in the way that God works in our lives, how does that typically play out according to what the Bible teaches? Well, I would say that what this morning is going to show us is that the further along we go, the more difficult that it gets. And that the closer we get to the finish line, the greater the opposition is going to be. And so we sort of pick up this story that we've been studying through in chapter 6 of Nehemiah where uh, we are seeing how God just reaches down and grabs a hold of this ordinary, average Hebrew slave who's living in uh, Persia under the rule of the Persian king, Artaxerxes, and God just begins to use him to do great things. And so he goes from being the cupbearer to the king to suddenly having this great burden that the walls around his homeland in Jerusalem are destroyed, and so he feels the calling of God upon his life, and he begins to pray and seek the face of God, and God starts orchestrating events so that he's able to go back and begin the rebuilding process. And what we've learned over the last several weeks is really this would mark three chapters in a row that are really devoted to the opposition that Nehemiah faces. 
And so two weeks ago, Pastor Rod talked through an entire chapter where we saw this external uh, opposition that comes from these characters, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, and how they are uh, part of the rulers of the provinces around Jerusalem and how they were trying to thwart the work of God and stop the Lord's plan from going forward and just constantly harassing Nehemiah as he's going. And then last week we saw that uh, even as uh, Nehemiah was able to sort of get uh, the, the external trials that were coming against him off his plate and focus on what he was doing, then there was God working through trials on the inside of the people to bring about the change that God wants to do. And, and it, as we've studied this, we've seen consistently that God's showing us He's not building a wall, He's building a people. He uses the wall to build the people. And He's always about people. God's always building a people. And so we've seen this external, we've seen this internal, and now we're approaching the finish line. I mean, the, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Nehemiah and all of his workers... Are, uh, they've got to be greatly encouraged. They've seen God do amazing things in an incredibly short amount of time. And it's, uh, I mean, it's right there. Uh, right, the, the, the success is just any moment. And so the question is now, what is, what is the Bible going to teach us about Nehemiah's experience and the experience of his people when the finish line is in sight? And so that's what we're going to look at beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. The Bible says, Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arabs, so here's our characters are back again, and the rest of our enemies heard that we had rebuilt the wall and that there was no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates. So now the wall is essentially completed. The only thing left to do is hang the gates. All of the all of the masonry work has been completed, and it's only time now to, to, to block in the gaps that are used for exit and entry. And so Satan is not just going to roll over and allow this to be completed. He's going to continually be working uh, however he can to stop the, the work of God. And so he brings this new challenge into Nehemiah's uh, uh, mind. Look at verse 2. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together among the villages of the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So there's this plain of Ono that Nehemiah says, Oh no, I'm not going to the plain of Ono. They, they thought to do me harm. I think that's why it's called that. Maybe it was named that after this. Maybe Nehemiah named it. I don't know. But The interesting thing is is that what they're trying to do is they're trying to draw Nehemiah out of his area of security and safety. In other words, they want him to leave the city and leave the work, obviously, but they want him to go to this plain that's located outside of the, the bounds of Jerusalem so that he would not be in a Jewish region anymore. He would not be under any sort of protection. In fact, he would be an alien or a foreigner amongst strange people. And so that's their motivation. Look at verse 3. So I sent messengers to them, and I said, I am doing a great work, so I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same way. You know, one of the difficulties with... Resisting sin is the fact that we need to get firmly drilled into our consciousness that sin is not a a one-time event. It's a constantly repeating cycle. That sin doesn't just come after you and then maybe you... Uh, you know, you overcome a temptation or you get through a situation and then you, you know, you can breathe easy for a minute and you think sin is going to back up or leave you alone. It's, sin has a relentless nature and it comes and it comes and it comes. And so you see here that even though they try to get Nehemiah to leave the work and go out into the plain, he says no. They send it again and again and again and again and he keeps telling them the same thing and it keeps coming back and keeps coming back. And I think so many people today wrongly believe and I think it's because we want to believe we want in our hearts we want it to be true that if I just walk with Jesus long enough if I just get far enough down the journey of faith I'll get to a place 
where conquering sin will get easy. That it'll, I'll, get, I'll get so proficient at overcoming sin that sin won't be this big struggle for me on a, on a regular basis. And I think the problem with that is, is that it radically underestimates the danger of sin and the plan and operation of Satan. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, to be sober and vigilant because our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That the Bible is using this very descriptive language to get us to think about Satan in such a way that he's a roaring lion. That if you know there's a lion out there and he's seeking to devour whatever he can, then you would never let your guard down. It's not like you would go in your tent and feel secure and then just sleep peacefully knowing there was a lion prowling about. That wherever there was a lion, there would be uneasiness, especially a, a hungry lion seeking to devour something. And that's what the Bible wants us to see here, is that the the more mature we become in Jesus, the more mature our faith becomes the greater a threat we become to evil. And so you, you, you can't think of things in terms of the way you want them to be. What we have to do is let the Bible shape what is. So think of it this way. Satan lives to thwart the purposes of God. That's his agenda on earth. So it would only make sense that Satan would concentrate his attacks most viciously upon those who are advancing the kingdom that he's trying to stop. You see, the idea that early on Satan is on us in such a way and that as we become more mature that he begins to leave us alone is completely counterintuitive to the Bible. That the Bible pits the will of God and the purpose of God against the will and purpose of evil. And that the more mature a person comes in Christ, the more uh, advanced a person becomes in their journey with the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater the threat, therefore, obviously, the greater the warfare. So how would you, how would you discern a person's spiritual maturity? If I would ask you a question this morning, I would say, how, how is it, tell me how you evaluate a person's spiritual maturity, whether it be your own or someone around you. What, what characteristics do you look for in a person's life? I think that a lot of people would say things that have to do with discipline. In other words, they would say, well, somebody is a, a very mature believer because they're very devoted to church because they're always in church every time the doors are open. Or somebody may say that a person's very mature in Christ because they uh, have a very uh, disciplined regiment of Bible study and they read the Bible on a daily basis and therefore they're a mature Christian. And I would say that those two things, for example, are precursors to spiritual maturity, but they're not markers necessarily of spiritual maturity. Uh, let me explain what I mean. I, first of all, as far as uh, the Scripture goes, understand that Satan knows every single word of Scripture by heart. That just head knowledge in and of itself uh, is not necessarily a marker of spiritual maturity. The world's filled with people who've grown up in church, who have listened to thousands of sermons and have read their Bible cover to cover and walked away and have absolutely no relationship with Jesus Christ whatsoever today. The world is filled with people like that. And knowledge in and of itself clearly is no guarantee of maturity. Although there's not going to be maturity without knowledge, possessing knowledge won't automatically lead us to maturity. Furthermore, I would advise you that most churches have many people in them that are present every time the doors are open, and yet they're utterly immature, and in many cases, unsaved. You show me a church where the focus in that church 
is comfort and enjoyment. And I promise you that it will be filled with people who faithfully attend and who are devoted to the purposes of that church. You know why? Because the church is devoted to them and what they want to do. And so they're, they're faithful. They're there because it serves their purpose. If you think about it, what, what, are, what are most people faithful in? Well, I would say most people are faithful in paying their mortgage. And why is that? Because our house serves very important purposes in our life. And so if you're, gonna, if, if you're running short one month and you don't have enough to make the bills, I'm pretty sure the mortgage isn't one of the things that's going to be on the hook at the end. It's going to go first because a house provides the needs of shelter and protection and security and in so many ways. So we are faithful to that because of what it does for us. If you think about employment, if you think about, think about the way people typically relate to their job. You wouldn't think anything strange of a conversation that's centered around the fact that the more people make at their job, the more faithful they tend to be at that job. Because the more they make, the more they value the job, which means the more the job feeds into what they need, so therefore the more faithful they are to it. But if a, if a person feels very underpaid or underappreciated, they're going to be less faithful to that job. Now, a Christian is called to do the opposite and just be faithful no matter what. But what I'm saying is that the flesh is faithful to whatever's faithful to the flesh. And so there's a lot of people that are faithful to their church, but their church is just being faithful to their flesh. You see, faithfulness, it, it can be an indication of, of devotion to the right things, but it can also just be a, a response to what people are getting in return. So when I uh, hear people talking about churches and, and I hear other people telling me about their church and they say things to me like, oh, we have such a wonderful church. We have so many uh, fun trips and activities planned for our people. You see, would, does that sound strange to you? I hear that sort of stuff all the time. And I think to myself, you know, if it weren't for the steeple that's on the roof, I don't know how anybody would tell that any difference between that church and a country club. It seems to me like you go there, you pay your dues, and then you get fun things in response. In other words, it's like a sort of a, uh, an organization that's built around doing the things that we want to do. But here's my question. Is that the picture that Scripture paints of the church? Is that the bride that Jesus was slaughtered to purify? See, the question is, not are you faithful? The question is, are you being faithful to the cause of Christ or are you being faithful to the cause of self? You see, church is a place where you don't come to, to be entertained. and It's not a place you come to have fun. It's a place you come to die, to die to self, to grow in righteousness. Now, we are an amazing family here. And God has raised up and knit together this people in such a spectacular way. And yes, it is true that within the family of faith, we're relentlessly to love each other and care for each other and serve each other, which is a wonderful blessing that I wouldn't trade for anything in all the world. But while we're doing that, we have to make sure that we're on track, that we're moving towards the purposes of God and not the purposes of Ourself. You see, we're a family, but we are a specific type of family. We're not just any family. We're a family of soldiers in the army of God that have been called to war together. And so we have to train for the battle. We have to keep our, our eyes focused. We have to care for the wounded that's in the fight. We, we have to remind ourselves sometimes daily, why we are doing the things we're doing. And I so relate to what's going on with Nehemiah here as I think about how much I love this faith family. I oftentimes tell people, I say, you know, I, I can't even express in words how much I love this church and how grateful I am just to be a part of it. But the reason for that is because so many of you get it. 
you understand that church is often hard. You know that there's, there's days, especially here recently, where, you know, I'm driving home. I mean, Mondays are hard for me. Monday's my day off, and there's a reason for that because Mondays, Mondays are when I'm usually in the valley because Sundays, uh, you know, you, you get done with Sunday, and I don't know how to explain this to you other than I know this is common to many pastors that on Monday we just, uh, we just our mind is just rattled over all the things that, that happened the day before. And, you know, sometimes it's hard here, isn't it? Yeah. I know, I know, because I know when it's hard for me and I know when it's hard for you and I know when you limp out of the service. You know, but, but that's, I don't have any control over that. That's what God's doing. And the thing about it is, is that it's, I'm so grateful to, to, to see you just embrace the hard things that God's called us to as a fellowship and being willing to hear the things that you don't necessarily want to hear, but that you believe that God says that we need to hear. And I also love this church because God loves this church. And the reason why God loves this church is I'm not really sure, but he loves it because he shows up here. And wherever God shows up, we know that it's because uh, we're doing the things that God would have us to do. And so people come here and they start going to church here. And what happens? They oftentimes change and change greatly. And it's such a blessing for you, I hope, as a faith family to see how God changes people within the context of this very family that you're in. You know, it's, it's rare to, to see a group of people that are willing to believe God at His Word, to say, that's what God says, and we believe that. And, and it may seem totally unorthodox or totally uh, out of sorts with the world in which we live in, but that's what God says, and we believe it. And then back it up with sacrifice to accomplish his mission. You know, I have some pictures here of uh, the village of Villanova, which is the place that we first started working in almost two years ago when we, God relocated us down to this very remote and southern area in uh, Brazil called Jacare. This is me preaching a night service, and the reason I wanted you to see this picture is because behind me is the mud church that, has, uh, that they've built up. Now, this church is about... Uh, almost two years old, we went out there. It was the first community that we started working in. We started working in this community. It probably has roughly 100 people, the population of this community. And we began to work out there. And if you look at the next picture, you'll see that uh, that's the pastor with the guitar there and one of the girls and the, uh, his, one of his daughters that, that's singing. And so it's a very simple place. It's a very impoverished place. But yet it's a place where God has mightily worked. And then you saw pictures last year of our trip down there. This next picture is of people getting baptized in that fellowship. And so that one day there was 12 new believers baptized in that fellowship. And that's an astonishing thing when you consider the entire population is about 100 people. It's the first place we began working and people are getting saved at such an alarming rate per capita. On this last trip that we went down... We were able to see, I knew that there was in the works, but now you can see that the church is actually being built. This next picture is of them building the church. They're building a brick building in the middle of this little village of Villanova. So imagine that a year and a half ago, there's these people living in these mud huts that no one cares about, no one's ever fooled with. Now they're building this brick building. This will be the, the center point of the whole entire community will be this church and on this last visit uh, we were informed that since the last time we were there eight more people have come to faith in Christ and so if you just look at the 12 and the 8 and you say to yourself here we are with 18 or 20 new believers in a in an area that has a hundred people in population the equivalent would be if we started a church in Gulfport and in the first year we baptized 13,000 people. That's the per capita equivalent of what's going on there as here. Now, if we started a church in Gulfport and baptized 13,000 people, would that qualify in your book as revival? Would that qualify in your book as unbelievable and amazing? 
And I probably every uh, news service in, in Christendom for sure would be writing stories about us and talking about the fastest growing church in the United States and all the things that are happening and so on and so forth. And they baptized 13,000 people. And I'm saying that you, Michael Memorial, have been a part of planning a church that has brought the same revival to this little bitty village in the middle of nowhere that no one cared about that's what God does. This is a picture of uh, Matt Davis, or Pastor Mateo, as they call him. And that entire family, last year Matt preached, and that, that man right there came to faith in Christ. We came back the next trip. His wife then had come to faith in Christ. Now the entire family's come to faith in Christ. Uh, we'll be baptizing the, the wife and the daughter soon. His mother-in-law and father-in-law have come to faith in Christ on uh, his wife's side and his own parents this last time we found out have come to faith in Christ who all live in this little village the thing is is that you don't see these kinds of things anywhere other than in the book of Acts but you see them going on and the point I'm trying to make is is that God says that this is what we ought to do it's not going to be easy it's going to take sacrifice but it's worth it and you say Let's go. Let's do it. We believe God. We'll, we'll go there. We'll do that. We'll fund it. We'll, and look at what God does. It's just truly amazing. And it's these sorts of things that truly just uh, make me not only uh, joyful to be a part of this fellowship, but also uh, create in me just this total, uh, I mean, I have absolutely no interest in joining a country club. None. I mean, I, I couldn't, the, the thought of trying to do humdrum church is just, after the things that God has done here and the things that I've been able to see with my own eyes, it's just truly, uh, it's not an option. It's just not an option for me, and I don't believe it's an option for you. And if you think about things, you think about what's going on with churches these days and how so much of uh, the American church is focused inward. And just trying to, you know, create a country club atmosphere so that everybody will want to come there. You know, Jesus spoke directly to those churches in Scripture. And yet, amazingly enough, either they're just ignoring the passage of Scripture or teaching on it and just twisting it around in some sort of way to where everyone doesn't run screaming out of the building. Think about it. Revelation chapter 3. Jesus says to the country club church, Oh, you're lukewarm. You're neither cold nor hot. And I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, Well, I am rich and I become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And you do not know, according to God, that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. There it is right there. And yet, a church that says, oh, We don't want to be lukewarm. We want to be on fire for God. We want to be a part of what God's doing. Uh, God responds. You see, the Bible says about those who understand spiritual maturity that they're, you must therefore endure hardship as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul tells Timothy in the very last book he ever wrote, he sees the light at the end of the tunnel. He's at the, he's at the closing moments of his time on earth. And and he says to Timothy, you must, not you might, but you must endure hardship as a good soldier. That that's what we've been called to, that we're a family of faith, but we're a family of soldiers that has been called into a war. And good soldiers must constantly stay focused and refocus themselves on the objective that we've been called to or else we'll drift off course. And every time we drift off course, where will we drift? We'll drift onto ourselves. Always, because that's our natural tendency. And so we have to allow Scripture to constantly bring us back. That's why Nehemiah says, as they're trying to get him off the wall and they're trying to get him to go out into the plain of Ono, he says, no, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. He's saying, I'm doing a great work, that God has involved me in his, prophet, in, his, in, his, in his project and in his priorities, that the greatest thing that we can do as people is be involved in what God is involved in. And Nehemiah knows that. And he's reminding himself and the people around him, we're involved in a great work. So many times I just sit at my desk and say, God, we're doing a great work. 
We're doing a great work. And everything in the world comes against us. And everything in the world is trying to derail us and trying to make us drift off course. But we have to stay focused. We have to remember, how do we discern spiritual maturity? How do we know if we're spiritually mature? Well, it's not just because we attend church. It's not just because we know the Bible. We've established that. I could go through all the other common uh, misnomers about that. But how do we know? Well, a mature person in Christ is involved in the battle at hand. They realize that they're a soldier and that we're at war and that every soldier plays a role in the process. You see, it starts with things like reading your Bible, and it certainly starts with things like being faithful in church attendance, but a mature person is formed in how that person then responds to what they learn as they read the Bible and what they learn as they're faithful in church. You see, the difference between someone who appears to be mature on the outside and someone who actually is mature is not in what they do, it's how they respond to what they do. It's how they, how do you respond? You see, because you can sit in church and you can hear sermon after sermon after sermon. You're, you have all the freedom in the world to hear everything I'm going to say this morning, walk out the doors and just push it out of your mind and never give it another thought. Or you can embrace it, ingest it, take it in, and then respond to it. That's the difference between just being and being mature. You see, the more you align yourself, the more you involve yourself in the purposes of God, then obviously the greater level of attack from evil you're going to have, which I think tends to throw us off course because we just don't think that way. We think that as we go on, it's just going to get better we think that as we get to the senior years of our life, then we've, we've, we've gone through that, and so we sort of go into retirement mode, and because that's what we do in culture, we reach a certain age and then we retire. We think that we translate that thinking into the kingdom of God, and that is the furthest thing from the truth. It's the furthest thing from the truth. There's perils of greatness. Perils. You see, when you say in your heart, God, I want to be great for you. When you really understand what that means, when you're not just saying something and you actually mean that with all your heart, you understand that that's according to what God says is great. Not what we say is great, but what he says. And then that, that means that he's going to do things the way he wants to do them, but there's perils to that. That, it, that. that being great in the kingdom of God doesn't mean it's going to be easy. You see, because if greatness equals faithfulness to the plan of God, if greatness, which it clearly is directly associated with our faithfulness to the cause of Christ, then should it surprise us that with every degree of faithfulness comes yet the opportunity to be tested in greater ways, which then brings the opportunity to be even more faithful to the cause of Christ, which then brings greater tests, which then brings an opportunity for great. In other words, the way you advance in greatness in the kingdom of God is through the trials. That's what Nehemiah is teaching us. And so the person that says, well, I'm, I'm a, a spiritually mature person. Well, I mean, I hope that you can say that and that I hope that that's true of you. But I would simply say, maybe you might ask yourself this question. Are you doing a great work? Are you doing a great work today? I mean, is there something that Satan is constantly trying, the world is always trying to derail you off of, and you're like, no, I'm doing a great work, and I can't come down. I'm not going to go over there and do this or do that because I'm doing something. Or are you just sort of drifting along? Because that's really the mark of spiritual maturity. I'm doing a great work. How do you know if a work is great? Well, I would say one of the easiest ways to, to know is to what degree are you facing opposition from the, the forces of unrighteousness? 
You see, one of the ways that I know that I'm doing the things that God's called me to do is because it's so continually difficult that around every corner is another challenge and another hurdle, that there's always opposition, that it's never easy, that it never just coasts along. There's always going to be hardship. That's the plan of God. That's the purpose of God. That's how you advance in the kingdom of God. And so it could be in all sorts of arenas in life. I mean, I, I thought this week of, of all the people in this fellowship that are doing a great work, and, and many of them know that. Some of, them, some of you may not even be aware of the great work that you're doing. You know, some of you are doing a great work. You're raising great kids. I don't just mean that you're, you, know, you bring your kids to church and you involve them in all the activities at church, which is important and wonderful, but more than that, there are families in this congregation that are going the extra mile, that are building a generation of, of world changers. And I see that in all sorts of various ways. I see, I see moms and dads sacrificing for the gospel to come to bear in their children. And that is an extraordinary work that you will always be. And, and when I talk to you, you know who you are. What is our conversation almost always about? Your family is against you. Your parents don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. Your neighbors think you're crazy. Your coworkers are always whining because of this or because of that. And everyone thinks that you've lost your mind. But you stay focused on the mission. And the more that everyone's against you, the more you should know that you're doing what God called you to do. Just like Nehemiah. Some of you are doing a great work in your place of employment. Some of you literally are, em are like employed secret agents of the gospel in your, in your job. That you exist in your job. See, the thing is, is that that's true for everyone here with a job. The sad reality is, is that only a select few of you really embrace this and understand this. And you literally go to work to a mission field every single day. It's not even about the job. It's about the mission field. And every time I talk to you, I'm so encouraged by how you are so focused. And it's always so hard and there's so much opposition. But you realize that it's a great work that God's called you to. And when things try to derail you or distract you, you're always like, no, it's a, I'm doing a great work and I can't come down. You know, just the selflessness that some of you exhibit, the sacrifice of many people in this fellowship to make other things go to, to, that, that you can't do for, for various reasons, but maybe you're not gifted in that area. Maybe you're not, your health doesn't permit it. Maybe there's some other reason why you can't do certain things, but you sacrifice to make sure that those that God has called to do it are able to do it. That is a great work. You're advancing the kingdom. That that's the whole idea of the metaphor of the body of Christ and how each individual component works together to accomplish the work that God's called us to. You know, here's a popular message. I mean, it'll, it'll, it'll fill auditoriums all day long. Sacrifice for the cause of Christ is the mechanism for achievement in the ranks of the army of God. I mean, you literally run people out of, a, of, of some sort of a, you know, uh, giant gathering or some, some big crusade if you start talking about advancement in the kingdom of Christ or advancement as a good soldier comes through sacrifice. No one wants to hear that. Isn't that what Jesus was constantly saying? Isn't that what Jesus, at the height of his ministry in John chapter 6, that's what he says. And you know what happens? Everybody leaves. And here's what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't go running after him. He doesn't go, wait, 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 wait. Come back, come back. You misunderstood me. I didn't mean all that, eat my flesh, drink my blood stuff. I didn't mean that, you know, in order to follow me, you, you, I have to be like food and, and water to you. No, he doesn't. Do, he lets them leave. And then even when the disciples are leaving, he doesn't stop them. He simply looks at Peter, his main guy, and says, are you going to leave also? You see, that's the message of the gospel. It, it, it's a, it brings division. But you, you don't let that to get you off course. You, you have to realize that sacrifice is the currency in the economy of God. 
but it gets better. Not only is sacrifice the currency in the economy of God, but there's always a plethora of people willing to be used as a tool of Satan around you to stop you from accomplishing what God's called you to do. So not only is it sacrifice between you and God, but you're going to have all this external problems coming at you from every different direction. You know the, the, the word devil in Scripture that we saw in 1 Peter, that, the Greek word is uh, diabolos, and that word means slanderer, that he's the slanderer. Look at verse 5. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand, and it was written, It is reported among the nations that Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors that you are rebuilding the wall, that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king, so come therefore and let us consult together. Interesting. Then I sent to them, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they all were trying to make us afraid, saying that their hands will be weakened by the work, and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. You see, there, there's never a shortage of those that are willing to be a tool of Satan to be used against you. And so now we see that when the first plot doesn't work to get him out into the plain of Ono, now what we're going to do is we're going to use gossip and rumors. We're going to start talking about him. We're going to start all these uh, false sort of slanderous accusations. Notice what it says in verse 5, that Sanballat sent this letter, an open letter in his hand. Why is it an open letter? Because in, in uh, this time in history, how would somebody send a letter? They would send a scroll, and the scroll would be sealed with a wax stamp that would authenticate it so that when it got to the rightful person, however many hands it had to trans transfer across to get to the rightful person, then that person would open it and break the seal, and then they would know that that letter was authentic. But he doesn't send a letter that way. He sends an open letter. Why do you think he sends an open letter? Because he wants everyone to read it all the way along the way. Because he wants to spread all these lies that Nehemiah wants to be king and that he's going to defect from King Artaxerxes and so he's going to cause all these problems. You know, people always have loved to, to hear juicy news. The flesh can't get enough of something juicy. And so Nehemiah, have you heard? He's setting himself up to be the king. That's why they're rebuilding the walls. As soon as they're done, they're going to revolt against the, the, the king and set Nehemiah up. And, you know, whenever a person gossips or reports things that they don't know firsthand to be true, make no mistake about it, you're a tool of Satan when you do that. Anytime you speak anything about somebody to somebody that cannot solve that situation, you are a tool of Satan, according to Scripture. So be very careful knowing that the enemy wants to use you, and so many people, some willing, some unwillingly, being used as a tool of Satan to thwart the work of God. Proverbs 18 says this, A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Now notice what the Bible says next. The words of a gossip are like tasty morsels, and they go down into the inner parts of the body. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. We were so excited last year because when we were in Brazil last year, we started working in this village of Jeju. And so the thing is, our work in Brazil has become so expansive that there's a lot of different things going on at one time. And I realize that as I talk about these things, it's hard for you to keep them straight because they're, they're so personal to me. But to many of you, they're just places. But it's a so we're, we went to this, we're, we're constantly going further and further and further out. And so we started working in this place of Jeju. That's the place where we went and first introduced ourselves and brought beans. And those little five-pound uh, sack of beans, were, were, you'd have thought we gave them a million dollars. They were so excited because of those beans. And then that opened up the opportunity for us to begin to share with them. And so we've been very excited about being able to start a gospel work there. And so the last time I was there, uh, previous to this trip, was the first time that I'd even begun the process. They kept saying, no, we believe that God has sent you to teach us about your God. 
And they're the ones that say, we believe in God, but Jesus we've never heard of. Doesn't that sound familiar like the book of Acts? And here we are living this out right in front of my face. And so then, in the meantime, since the last time I was there, and then this trip now, trouble is stirred up. And it's amazing, as I'm reading through Nehemiah, and I'm studying through Nehemiah, the exact thing is happening in Jeju. Now there's rumors started up in Jeju that uh, don't trust the Americans because the American pastor wants to steal your land. Because that's what I want, is your land. I mean, I've dreamt all my life of living in a mosquito-infested mud hut. I mean, I'm so pumped about stealing your land. It was, it's great. It might be worth $1.75. But nonetheless, it's probably the way Nehemiah thought when this was spreading about him wanting to be king. And, and so we get to Jeju. Here's some pictures. We, we arrive there. There's Jonna talking with some, some kids under the tree there in the middle of the community. And as we're going along, we, we gathered everybody together. This next picture is everyone gathered together around uh, that little uh, grass roof you see in the, in the background there is the uh, school building and a sort of city hall and everything wrapped up into one. And so we pulled all the, the desks out of the school, and we all sat in a big circle, and we're going to have a meeting and sort of resolve this issue. And so we're not really sure what all these rumors are about. We just know that they're swirling. And then as we start talking, this next picture shows this lady in the yellow stands up, and she starts talking about how she has uh, gone to the city and spoken to a lawyer and gotten some information about how we might be... Uh, wanting to take their land. And that's Lee coming up to her and saying, Lady, really? Take your land? Do you think I flew halfway around the world to come here to take your land? Does that make any sense to you? We've come here because Jesus sent us here. And suddenly the, the whole tone of everything began to, to change. And then the next picture is me standing next to the president with a big picture that we brought of all of us together Uh, there at our last visit to Jeju and sort of solidifying this gospel partnership that we have. And they're now very excited for us to come and to be a part of what God is doing. But, you know, we could have just said, listen, that's just ridiculous and and walked away and and gotten mad and and went somewhere else. But we know that's what, that's how this goes. That you don't, you don't, you don't, buckle under when opposition comes you just know that that's part of the process and then at the end of the night we were there till dark you can see all the kids there with their uh, mission balls that uh, we brought and so the there's all these kids every day running around kicking these balls that have the gospel imprinted all over the soccer ball in their native language and it's such an amazing tool and so what we realize is that there's always people willing to be used as tools of Satan, some willing, some unwilling. You just need to make sure that it's not you. You need to make sure that you guard your lips against anything that could be gossip or anything. If you don't know something to be true firsthand, then you shouldn't be speaking of that thing. And you certainly, if you're going to speak about it, you make sure that you only speak to someone who can do something about it. It's just remarkable to me how many times I have to have the same conversation where someone comes up and says, Pastor, I need to ask you a question. I've been hearing, and then they tell me something, and I just go, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Don't don't be a tool of Satan. Don't do that. You see, as you grow in spiritual maturity, as you approach the finish line, don't be surprised when gossip and rumors start against you. Don't be surprised when people that, that you, you thought would stick up for you, people that you thought were close to you, people that you counted as a, a friend, you, you expected them to, to understand. People, th- this is the shocking thing, is that you, the level that someone knows you personally still will not stop people from believing the most far-fetched, ridiculous things about you when they're being used by Satan. Look at verse 10. Nehemiah says, Afterwards I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, and the son of Metabel, who was a secret informer. And he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and indeed at night they will come to kill you. And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there such a such that I would go into the temple to save his life. I will not go in. 
Now, a couple things I just want to point out to you. First of all, the name Shemaiah, right off the bat, indicates that he's a Jew. That's a Jewish name. So, first of all, this person who's a secret informant is a Jew. Second of all, notice what it says in the beginning of verse 10. Nehemiah says, after I came to the house. After I came to the house of Shemaiah. What does that tell us about Shemaiah? That that was Nehemiah's friend. That that was someone's house that he went to. Don't be surprised that someone who sat in your living room, sat in your dining room, ate dinner with your family, prayed with you and cried with you, hears some wild rumor about you and then begins to run with it. Don't be surprised. It's right here in Scripture. Listen, when you're trying to accomplish the work of God, you have to be prepared and understand that this is the way things go. That the enemy is not going to roll over and just leave you alone. No, this was Nehemiah's trusted friend, this brother. One of the ones that he came because he was burdened for to rebuild the walls. And that very one has turned against him. Now, is that shocking new news? Or has evil always worked between people that were close? Has it not? Did it not start between Cain and Abel? Who is it that betrayed Jesus? Was it not Judas? One of his inner circle? In other words, maybe what you might want to do as you're, as you can see the finish line, as you're pressing forward in the, in the work that God's called you to and you feel pressure coming from the outside, just close your eyes and imagine yourself sitting at the table with all of your closest peers and And say, one of you who dips in this bread will betray me. You know, it's just part of doing the work of God. That people from outside, people from inside, I mean, if it's not trying to get him to go out to the plain of Ono, now it's to go into the temple. Why does Nehemiah say, I'm not going in the temple? Well, Obviously, Nehemiah is not a Levite, so he doesn't belong in the temple. That would violate the covenant that he's there trying to rebuild. Secondly, he's unclean. He's been working on the wall. I mean, the whole thing is wrong. Why do they want to get him in the temple? They want to get him in the temple because they know that would be a violation, and they're going to try to use that against him. They're trying to get him to sin. That's what they're trying to do. People ever try to get you to sin? They try to try to keep pushing you and pushing you so you'll lose your temper and say something, and then they go, aha. Or they just keep on and keep on and keep dangling sin in front of you and trying to make it and and showing you, well, I'm doing it, so why don't you do it with us? I mean, it's fun, and nobody's going to know. And then as soon as you step off that ledge into that activity, the world caves in around you. Nehemiah says in verse 12, Then I perceived that God had not sent them at all, but that... He pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin. You see? So that they might have uh, a cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. You need to be careful as you're accomplishing the work that God has before you of who you surround yourself by because, again, it's very easy to get caught off guard if you're not cautious and careful and then we see verse 17 also in those days the nobles of judah sent many letters to tobiah and the letters of tobiah came to them for many in judah had pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of shechaniah the son of Erah, and the son of Jehanan, who had married the daughter of meshalem great names for you that are, are, are talking thinking about having kids and the son of barakiah Also, they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Now, what's going on here? Now that he won't go in the plain of Ono, now that all this open letter gossip about him hasn't stopped him, now that he won't go into the temple, so now here's what they do. They use a person who has a good reputation. And again, you see the the reason why I'm harping on this issue of spiritual maturity because you see the plethora of people within the, the context of Nehemiah's family that are immature and that are being used as tools of Satan. So you've got this son-in-law, uh, Shechaniah, and 
he comes and he's going to try to deceive Nehemiah. And the way he's going to do that is all these other people are vouching for him, saying he's a good guy. He's a good guy. He, he goes to church every time the doors are open. He's a good guy. I see him. He serves in such and such a ministry or he does this or he, you know, gives money to this charity or that charity or whatever the case may be. And the thing about it is, is because he's connected to certain people, then somehow that connection trumps his character. You see, they're, they're vouching for him based on a relationship, not on character, which I'll talk a lot more about in tonight's sermon. But the thing I want you to see here is that sin is relentlessly in pursuit of Nehemiah. The enemy is not letting down as he's getting closer, but he's pressing on and he's ramping up the game and he's trying to, to stop uh, the work that, that Nehemiah is doing. And then you see in verses 15 and 16 that the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul. In 52 days, the wall was finished. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it that all the nations around us saw these things that they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. You see, some of you are in the twilight of your journey. And it's been a hard journey. And when you look back at your life and you see all of the hardships that you've been through, and you look at all of the, the challenges and the tests that you faced, and now you find yourself, uh, you know, much closer to the end than you are to the beginning. And, and your, your battle has been for your grown children or for your, your grandchildren or even in some of your cases your great-grandchildren, and your, your burden is, is over your legacy, but you're tired and you think, you know, I'm, I'm tired, and I've, I've already I've fought the battle. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm no longer on active duty. You know, I'm, I'm now just, I've got a desk job in the, in the army of God. And I want to tell you, you're wrong. You're wrong, senior adult. You're wrong. That God has called us all to a lifelong fight. And you know what you are? You are the... You're the Navy SEALs in the army of God. You're the most highly trained group of people that we have in the army. You're the ones that we need the most. We need your wisdom. We need your guidance. We need your prayerfulness. We need you to serve. We need you to be a part. And yes, it's, it's going to be hard. And it's going to be even harder than it was when you were young. Because the closer you get to the finish line, the more difficult it's going to get. That the process of advancement is sacrifice. But you've got to keep pushing. Don't give up. And here's the thing. So many times, so many times I, I see in your face you're, you're tired. And sometimes you, you just, you know, you just think, I don't know. And you, you, you get discouraged. You see the, the direction that the world's going in. And you just, you're just trying to hang on. Don't do that. Fight. I know, the, I know you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. But keep fighting. Keep fighting. Because we need you. You're important in the army. And there's a role for you to play. I want you to know that when we finally made it to Saudeos this last time, it, it really was a, a high point in, in, in everything that God's allowed me to be a part of in Brazil. And we, we searched and searched to find this place named Only God. And we got to the outskirts of it, and we didn't know how long the path would be. And so we, this is a picture of us under the tree before we ventured under there. And so we just prayed, God, here we are at this place. We've never been here before. We don't know anything about it, but we feel like you've called us to come and share the gospel to this place. And so, God, will you go before us? And when we got done praying, then this next picture just gives you an idea of, of this path that we started walking down. And I don't know how long we walked, but it was a pretty good distance, and we just walked and walked and walked, and finally we, uh, you know, we had to encourage each other along the way. You can see that everyone there is as tall as I am, obviously. And then we finally get there, 
And uh, this is just a, a, just a picture for you to see the, the poverty of Saudeos. I mean, that is a house that someone lives in. A family lives in that. It's almost like what a termite or a dirt dauber lives in to us. They live there. I mean, how do you, how do you wake up every day in dirt? How do you, how do you live in a, in a place where it's blistering hot all the time and you basically live in a kiln? But we prayed that God would lead us to a man of peace. And as we entered into that village, this next picture shows that we came. The first man we encountered was this man who had recently had his leg amputated. You see Bradley there as we began to pray for him. And he was so happy that we got there. And he began to tell us that he would gather up all the people in the village and in the surrounding villages. And that the next time that we came, that everybody there would be so excited that we'd been wanting to, for someone to come and find us for so long. And... This next picture is the picture of the, the, the baby that was covered with mosquito bites that we found. And just the simple act of giving the parents some mosquito repellent to wipe that baby down. So, I mean, I've never seen a human being quite so covered with whelps in all my life. And we were able to uh, just give them some of those gospel soccer balls. I think that next picture is Matt and Bradley pumping up a few of those soccer balls. And... As we got to the end of the village, as I told you last week, uh, we came across a man who was shouting out there. and He said, I've been waiting for someone to tell me about Jesus, and that's him kneeling down right there. It's, I mean, here we are in the middle of nowhere, and that man has been swinging a machete all day out in the forest, and he's shouting at us, hey, hey, we don't even know what he's saying. Come over here. Come over here. I've been waiting. I want to know about God, tell me about God. And he gets down on his knees and we have the opportunity to pray for him. So as we left the village, we gathered around at the man who's got the amputated foot and we thanked God for the experience that we had there and that God would allow us to, to come back again. And It's one of those rare moments in my life where as, as much as I always say that I if I long for anything, I long for Christ to come back and get us. But there's these special moments in my life where I look at a time like that and I think, God, I want you to come back right now. Right now would be a great time. But Lord, if it's not right now, could you just hold off long enough for me to get back to that village? Because Lord, I know there's people there and they want to know you. That you put a hunger in their heart. And I don't know how long ago you did that. And I don't know how long it's been sitting there. And I don't know how long they've been waiting for us to get there. But Lord, we got there. We got there, Lord. And it's because we we're part of a we're part of an army. And it's a battle to keep pressing. But that's what God's called us to do is to keep pressing. And the further we get I just want you to understand. I mean, I feel like this is God's way of, of just really helping us all understand. That if you're sitting here this morning and you think, you know, next year is going to be easier than this year. I don't think it is. I think it's going to be harder. And I think the year after that's going to be harder. And I think the year after that's going to be harder. And I think that if you don't understand that, if you don't know how to process that, then what you need to do is you need to go and sit down with some of our senior adults and you need to talk to them. And you need to realize that some of the greatest, deepest, hardest burdens that are carried in this fellowship are carried by the senior members of this family because of the things, the trials that they're facing right now. That you look at them and you think, well, they've got it all together. Or, you know, they're on the, you know, they're on the, they're in the coast mode. No, they're not, they're not coasting. And neither are we. And as long as we stay on mission with God, it's going to be a never-ending barrage of trials. But it's worth it. It's worth it. And the closer we get to the finish line, the harder it's going to get and the more determined we have to be. Now, aren't you glad this morning? 
Aren't you glad this morning that you got up and came to church and could be reminded of how hard the days ahead of us are? Well, let me help you with it. You know, God determined in His perfect providence that the way He would reconcile human beings to Himself would be to give His only Son as a sacrifice for us. And all we have to do is open the Bible to the Gospels and start reading, and it won't take us long to figure out that Jesus shows up on the scene. And it wasn't easy in the beginning, but it was a whole lot easier than it was going to be. And as He went and introduced Himself to the world and brought grace into the world and healed people of their diseases and, and fed them thousands at a time and did miraculous signs and wonders and people sort of ebbed and flowed with emotion that one day He was the great hero and the next day He was crazy and demon-possessed. But as He went along the course of His ministry, as He journeyed towards the place of the skull, it got harder. That every day that he woke up, as he was getting closer and closer to death, the, the war against him intensified. And the struggle around him got more personal and closer in. And every step of the way, it got harder and harder and harder. And aren't you glad this morning that when he got to the twilight of his ministry, he didn't just say, well, now it's time for me to coast along. It's time for me to just retire and ease off into the sunset. But he looked at the cross, and he looked at what the Father was calling him to and he put his face like a flint and even though he'd been betrayed from the inside even though he'd been maligned from the outside even though everything you could throw at him had been thrown at him that what started out so personal had ended up being so public so humiliating but he didn't stop he kept pressing for you until he died a bloody humiliating naked death on a cross why? So that we might have an opportunity to devote ourselves to the mission that he was slaughtered for. You see, when he saw the light at the end of the tunnel, he pressed on. He kicked it into high gear. He hunkered down. He was sweating blood in agony and angst. But he didn't back down. He kept pressing forward. May that be true of us. Let's stand and bow our heads.